0: I invite you to, to at this time to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6. You will find it on page 1,754, Romans chapter 6. We will read the entire chapter, but I am going to focus on the second half, 15 through 23. Again, I want to give context to what we're kind of hearing Paul In his letter to the Romans here is in this narrative flow where he sort of asks a question and answers it and gives a little bit more and then answers it again and gives context around it. So I want to make sure that I am giving proper context to what we are going to contemplate. In Romans 6, page 1,754. Hear now God's word. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. If we have been united with Him like this in His death... But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God and Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God, as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master." because you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means! Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap from the, from that, at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let us ask the Lord's blessing before we contemplate what we have read this morning. Let us pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, as we come before your word once again this morning, we ask for your blessing. May your servants speak truth. May your people have ears to hear, minds to engage, and hearts that you will form. Lord, may you be praised in all that is said, that is thought, that is spoken here in this place. This we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ through the operation of power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. People of God, beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, you may have walked into church this morning, picked up a bulletin, opened it up, looked down, and said, that's a lot of big words, Josh. What are you talking about here when you looked at the sermon title? I'm pretty sure I got a few of those this morning. I go, you keep using big words. It's great that we're learning, but you keep using big words. Well, sometimes the big words just happen to say exactly what I want to say. So, we're going to learn a little this morning. The cognitive dissonance of hypocrisy. The cognitive dissonance of hypocrisy. What in the world do I mean by that? Well, hopefully you'll understand by the end of this, and if you don't, Well, I haven't done my job thoroughly enough then. When I was growing up in high school, I had a friend of mine who was bosom buddies. She was such a tomboy. We had great conversations. And one day over lunch, she and I had this wonderful conversation over church. What does it mean to go to church? What does it mean to live when you go to church? And eventually it came out, you know, I really don't like going to church, she told me. I don't really like going to church because it's full of hypocrites. You go, what do you mean it's full of hypocrites? Well, you know, we hear from the preacher or from the pastor every day, this is this and that is that and this is the way you're supposed to live and this is how things are supposed to go and yet he's just as bad as all of us. I go, okay, I understand being cut off by more than once by someone that has a Jesus fish on the back of their car. But what do you mean the church is full of hypocrites? What I didn't realize at that time, and what I probably didn't have the boldness to answer her with, was, well, yes, the church is full of hypocrites, just like you. But the problem is, yes, the church is full of hypocrites. We hear from the pulpit every single time that we come up here at least, in one form or another, the Ten Commandments. Hear now the way you must live. Ten words of covenant. And yet, every time we walk through those doors... Into the world, we don't follow those ten words of covenant, do we? We don't always keep God first in our hearts. We don't always love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't always treat our neighbor as ourselves. We don't follow the definition of love. We just don't do it. John Piper actually made this whole thing into a title, carnal Christians. They are Christians. They're starting to learn. They're getting their feet under them. But they kind of still live like the world. Well, I'm sorry, Pastor Piper. I don't agree. And I don't agree because I don't think Paul agrees. In Romans 6 here, Paul asks two key questions, one at the very beginning of Romans 6, and then one in in verse 15. At the beginning, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? And he answers it quite succinctly in the passage that follows with, don't you know you're justified? Don't you know you're not who you used to be? You are no longer, when the book is opened and your name is read out, it no longer says so-and-so sinner, guilty on all accounts. You are now so-and-so innocent by the blood of Christ, penalty paid, purchased. You see, we can't keep living like we used to live when we are not who we used to be. Paul quite succinctly sums that up in 14 verses that I'm sure will be a sermon of mine in the future, but not today. But he continues in verse 15 and asks this question. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Answers it succinctly with, by no means. Okay, Paul, what do you mean? And then 16 through 23 explains what he means. Are we under sin or are we under grace? Well, obviously we're under grace. That's what the first part of Romans 6 said. But the second part of Romans 6 is something that we as Christians tend to have even better arguments today. Another big word warning coming in. This is called the antinomian problem. Anti meaning against, nomos from the Greek meaning law. So anti-law, the antinomian problem. What do I mean when I say that? Well, quite simply this. I don't live under the law, so why should I follow the law? Who cares about the Ten Commandments? I'm under grace. If Christ has paid the penalty for everything I've done and everything I'm going to do and everything I should have done, then why should I care? Why should God care? It's already been wiped clean. Too often we see the extremes, or at least it's easy to see the extremes. The nomians that claim that, or I should put it, the legalists that claim that Christianity is a checklist, or the antinomian that says, well, just live the way you want to live because grace is grace and grace is grace. But generally speaking, and I believe true Christianity puts it this way, we're kind of in the middle. Or as Paul puts it, we're already, but not yet. You have been justified. You are bought with a price. You are dead to sin. You are alive in Christ because you've been raised with Christ. So why do you keep living like you're still dead to sin? In 2 Corinthians, Paul puts it this way to the church in Corinth. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. There he talks more about circumcision and uncircumcision. Deals a little bit more with the legalistic side of things. But he says quite simply here, Don't you know that you are bought, that you are justified? And he gives an example, a common example in the time of the writing here, and a common example in Rome itself. He says, don't you know when you offer yourself to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? And of course, in our minds, we're going, well, duh. Of course. If you're a slave, you don't get to do what you want. You're a slave to your master. You don't get to act like you're slaves to someone else when you are slaves to another master. Paul says, in verse 16, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience leads to righteousness. You see, here is where the split happens. Here is where there is a bifurcation of humanity. There is a clear division. You are either a slave to sin, which leads to death, or a slave to obedience, which leads to righteousness. He says, but thanks to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You used to be that, but now you are this. This is where he brings in justification. He says, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness, So you were slaves to sin, and now you are slaves to righteousness. Well, what does this mean? This is your status change. Christians, when you are justified, you get a status change. You are saved from sin. You are no longer bound by sin. The red in your column no longer exists. The debt to be paid has been paid to the fullest. Paul says, I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. He goes, I need to put this in a way that you guys can understand. Your status has changed. So stop trying to act like you haven't had a status change. I had a professor that once had an argument with me in class, and I legitimately call this an argument because it did get quite heated. He told me, there is no possibility where a man could be saved and be a sinner. If you are a sinner, you are a sinner, and you are a sinner, and you will always be a sinner. If you are saved, there is no possibility that you could sin, for you would no longer be saved. You would be a sinner. I retorted with Romans and then said, well, Martin Luther said... We are saved and sinners at the same time. So how in the world does that work? What he was talking about was justification. What I brought up was sanctification. There are many ways where we wish, indeed, where this life could be easy. I am justified in Jesus Christ. I have no problems whatsoever. My financial problems, my everything else is just taken care of because Jesus is my Lord. Done. No problem. And then the war in my heart doesn't have to happen. I could just live for Jesus and be done with it. But it's so difficult for us when we realize that's not the way the world works and that's not the way that God has called us to live in this world. He doesn't just change everything at the snap of a finger. He says, no, you are my people in this world. And the wonderfulness about grace is that it's a process that is happening in you. Day after day, hour after hour, heartbeat, After heartbeat. Justification. Your status has changed. You are now justified. But sanctification. You are now being made holy. You are now being set apart. As my people. This is the cognitive dissonance that's going on. Gosh, you're using big words again. A dissonance in musical terms is something that just doesn't sound right. It's that ear grating, nails on a chalkboard, head splitting, oh, I don't like it kind of sound. Harmonics are beautiful. Harmonics you can play and they sound easy. We have chords. You'll hear them in the hymns that we sing. Chords will be together. But if you play two notes right next to each other, the wavelengths are off. It plays with your head. A cognitive dissonance is when you know something. I know the world operates in this way. I have been given the revelation of Jesus Christ through the word of God and I know through the spectacles of scripture that this is how God has operated the world and how I am justified in Jesus Christ. But I'm going to live like this instead. The two messed up wavelengths that are together is the wavelength of holiness and the wavelength of wickedness. As Paul puts it specifically in verse 19, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. Who you once were led to impurity and ever-increasing wickedness. One wavelength. Now, you are to give yourself to slavery in righteousness, which leads to holiness. Another wavelength. And the question, essentially, from verse 15 is, If you've been bought with a price, if your wavelength is supposed to be the wavelength of grace, then why do when I put the wavelength of grace right next to your wavelength, they're out of sync? Why do you call the sky green when it's blue? Why do you call the grass purple when it's green? You know better because it's been revealed to you, and yet we are weak in our natural selves. Quite simply put, to boil this all down, this is a perversion of the definition of love. Instead of taking what God has defined as love, namely himself, we would rather have love define what we would want, rather than define it as God has revealed it to us. As Augustine quite simply put it, we must have rightly ordered loves and have a love of God that is more than a love of self. Too often, however, we have the opposite. It's so easy to drive faster on the expressway when there's no one in front of you. So why don't I just cut off the car and then I have a free path? Well, you know... I could honor this coupon, but it's, you know, a little old, and after all, the law is the law. You know, why would I put my cart back in the cart corral? Because after all, I'm so busy. I'm just going to leave it here. That's what they get paid for, right? Just put them back. she posted that thing on Facebook again. I can't stand it. I can't stand it. You know what? I'm going to speak out against it and I'm going to set her straight. Too often we confuse being right for being righteous. Remember, people of God, being justified also means being sanctified. And what does it mean to be sanctified? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Or I love the older translation, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You see, the grace that has been extended to you is the grace that we are called to live out in our lives. The mercy that has been extended to you is the mercy that we need to extend in all of our lives. While preparing for this sermon, I ran across a quote from Spurgeon. I love this, this alliteration here. He says a drunkard woke up one morning from his drunken sleep with his clothes on him just as he had rolled down the night before. He saw his only child, his daughter Millie, coming and getting his breakfast. Coming to his senses, he said to her, Millie, why do you stay with me? She answered, because you are my father and because I love you. He looked at himself and saw what a sottish, ragged, good-for-nothing creature he was. And he answered her, Millie, do you really love me? The child cried, Yes, Father, I do, and I will never leave you, because when Mother died, she said, Millie, stick to your father and always pray for him, and one of these days he will give up drink and be a good father to you. So I will never leave you. Is it wonderful when I add that, as the story has it, Millie's father cast away his drink and became a Christian man? It would have been more remarkable if he had not. Millie was trying free grace, was she not? According to our moralists, she would have said, Father, you are a horrible wretch. I have stuck to you long enough. I must now leave you or else I should be encouraging other fathers to get drunk. Under such proper dealing, I fear Millie's father would have continued a drunker until he drank himself into perdition. But the power of love made a better man of him. Do not these instances prove that undeserved love has a great influence for good? You see, brothers and sisters in Christ, when we act as slaves to obedience and righteousness and holiness, it is the thing that pricks the hearts of others and becomes our evangelistic tool to say, here is the grace of God the grace that has been extended to me, which now is extended to you. And so come, let us eat at the feast of the bridegroom. Let us come before the Lamb of God together. How can we declare to the world that this free grace is a gift of God unto salvation of all who hear the call? If we cannot properly display the call, the grace, the love to those around us, justification, pure and simple, should live to sanctification, pure and simple. It's not easy. But the stumblings of life will merely be bruises to tell a story to generations around us that God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. That is the daily striving of a Christian. That is the gift of slavery to righteousness. The gift of God is life. How can we not live a life like we will live eternally. And I know it sounds trite, and I know it's probably cheesy, and I know it's probably really corny, but I do love the little placard I see from time to time on Facebook that tells me, live today like it's the first day of forever. People of God, do we live every day like it's the first day of forever? Or do we live every day like I have to have it now? Do we live every day like it's dog eat dog and I got to be a bigger dog? There is one perspective that we should have. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 23 sums it all up. Where are you going when this world is nothing but a memory? Are you going to live a life that is going to be nothing but constant death? Or are you going to be at the right hand of Jesus Christ? on streets of gold, pure as crystal? Are you going to be with the multitude that sings holy, holy, holy? Are you going to have rest? Or are you going to be where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth? You see, our perspective should be an eternal perspective. perspective with an aim. To those of you in the class that I taught on the creeds, here's a word, a teleological perspective. A perspective with an aim towards the goal of the end. So Christian, you who are justified... Let me ask this question. Starting today, continuing tomorrow, what are you going to do? Are you going to live with a perspective to now? Or are you going to live for Jesus, a life that is true, striving to please him in all that I do? Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, King of kings, Lord of lords, Master of the free, we come before you as your people justified and yet being sanctified through you. Lord, bend our wills toward you. May our hearts be renewed. May the breath in us be reinvigorated. That we may speak peace. That we may bring love. And that your hope and joy would be displayed to those around us. This we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Through the operation of the Holy Spirit. Amen. At this. T-